Welcome to So Dead, a podcast hosted by two women that some might say are certifiably insane. I'm Jen Carpenter. And I'm Danny Fairman. Happy True Crime Tuesday. And happy Taco Tuesday, deadheads. Today, we're going to be talking about a staple of mid-Michigan creepy history and lore, the Ionia Asylum. Ionia is a city located about 40 miles northwest of Lansing. It's basically midway between Lansing and Grand Rapids. Um, and in 1885, it became home to the Michigan Asylum for Insane Criminals. The facility quickly changed its name to the more user-friendly Ionia State Hospital. And for nearly 100 years, the institution housed insane felons and criminal sexual psychopaths. So this was not one of those asylums that was like a general home for mental patients and just some of them also happened to be criminals because they were insane and did insane things. No, this place was specifically for mentally ill criminals. Mm -hmm. So what went on inside those walls was all bad. Or what they considered mentally ill. Right. And we'll get into that. Yes. And what went on when patients made it outside those walls was even worse. Mm -hmm. The hospital closed in 1977, but that was years too late for several mid-Michigan families who paid the ultimate price when inmates managed to escape the asylum. It's Saturday, April 1st, 1967, in the Hankins? Hankins. Hankins? Hankins? You think it's Hankins? I would say. Okay. It's in the, we're at the Hankins home on Front Street in Grand Ledge, Michigan. The whole family, including the grandchildren, are gathered around playing cards when around 8.30 p.m., 10-year-old, and I say Rona, but I have heard other people say Rana. So I've heard Rana, and the reason I think it might be Rana, and either's okay. I would Mm -hmm. say looking at it, I would say Rona, but the things that make me see think Rana, our, um, her dad's her name dad was Ronald, Ronald. And right. so Rana sounds more like Ronald. And then also when her name was reported in papers later, um, a lot of times it was reported as Rhonda. And right. so I was thinking, you know, if maybe if somebody misheard said Rana and the newspapers interpreted it as Rhonda, that would make sense. That does make sense. But Rona or Rana? I'm going to go with Rona. Okay. Um, cause that's just how I read it. Okay. So 10 year old Rona Ray asked to walk to the Preston's party store just up the block to buy a bag of potato chips. Which Preston's is still there. Yes. Um, it's a it's a bar now, but it's still right there in the heart of downtown Grand Ledge. Yeah. And it's 1967. Little kids can go for a walk at 8.30 p.m. without their parents. Little kids could do whatever they fucking wanted in That's 1967. Right. That's right. And parents didn't have a reason to worry. Um, or so they thought. About 15 minutes after Rona leaves... Her mother suddenly stands up and proclaims that something has happened to Rona. She runs to the front door and yells for her daughter. Now Preston's visible from the front porch. So Rona should hear what her, you know, if her mother's yelling for her, she's maybe half a block to a full block away, Mm, but you can see. Yeah, like I think a half a block. Yeah, like you can see them. So there's nothing cushioning the sound. But Rona doesn't respond. Her mother goes to the corner store and asks if they've seen her daughter. The clerk advises her mother that Rona's already been there, bought her bag of chips, and is headed back to the family home. The entire family starts to search for her now. So if her mother's leaving the house and going to the store and Rona had already left the store and was headed home, they would have crossed paths. Not only crossed paths, but she would have been able to see her as soon as she looked out the door. 
Yep, exactly. So she's not there. She's not in between those two spots. Right. She only wouldn't have seen her if she was already, if like if she was still inside in the store. The store. Mm-hmm. Um, so the clerk advises her she's bought her bag of chips. She's headed back to the family home. The entire family starts to search. Um, this is not normal behavior for Rona to wander off. Uh, they soon find the bag of chips and one of Rona's shoes in the yard between the grandparents' house and her uncle's house, which is the next house, the next house over down in the opposite direction. So right. for whatever reason, she wound she was up passing her grandma's house. house. Right. They call the police immediately, who know Rona well, since her dad had been the assistant police chief for Grand Ledge for years. The search continues for about two hours until Rona's body is discovered in her grandparents' backyard in the shallows of the Grand River. Police estimate that she had been killed when her mother got that feeling that something had happened. Yeah. So and they terrible. found her right at the base of the downtown Grand Ledge water tower. Right. Which is a very iconic, picturesque little mm-hmm. when uh, we moved out there when my kids were younger and my both of my sons played baseball at the baseball field under the bridge at the river. So in these right. grandparents' backyard. And I just remember the water tower was just this adorable piece. I always took mm-hmm. a picture of it, you know, right. with the sunset and the trees and who would right. think that this horrible thing happened there. Right. All yeah. those years ago. Ugh. Yeah, no. Um, okay, so I'm going to cut to the middle of the story and tell you about Donald O'Brien. So okay. I don't mean to jump o- over anything, but I think it's important to bring him into this story right now. Okay. So Donald O'Brien was a convicted sexual psychopath who was held at the Ionia State Hospital under the Goodrich Act. So the Goodrich Act was basically an act put in place for people who committed crimes of a sexual nature. For example, if a man raped someone and then killed him, he was seen to have been driven to the criminal act by a sexual desire and basically found insane. So stupid. So he couldn't just be a piece of shit? No. He had to be insane. He was insane. I don't think... Like it doesn't a man even make forcing sense. Forcing himself on a woman makes him insane. It makes him a piece of shit. Yep. Okay. But let's, so, let's move on. Yeah. So these criminals were held at this hospital for treatment instead of serving time in prison. Oh. Uh huh. Good alternative. Donald O'Brien. Um, so now he's being held at the Ionia State Prison for the rape and murder of 55 year old Pontiac woman Haley Perkins in 1953. Oh my gosh. Also for the rape of a 16-year-old girl and an attack on another woman. Oh, my God. Who he had got caught attacking. So that's the only reason he didn't rape or kill her. Right. Because he got caught. Married at the time, his wife pleads with the courts to declare him a sexual psychopath instead of charging him with first-degree murder. Because she wanted him back home? Apparently. Oh, my God. So had he been charged with first-degree murder, he would have served a life sentence. But with declaring him a sexual psychopath, he would serve time in the hospital until he was, quote-unquote, cured. Like, why do you want him back? Exactly. You weirdo. Um, so on March 26, 1967, Donald and three other inmates had sawed their way out of the hospital and escaped. Oh, my God. What does it mean to saw your way out of a hospital? And I mean, there's nothing funny about this story I mean, at all. Bundy did it, but but like, how do you have a saw in prison? Like, do you just have a shiv? You know, <laughs> is that what it's called? 
The shiv. Yeah. Or shank. Shank. Yeah. Like it's a sharp, like a sharp, sharp Um, object. It could have been a saw in a little bit in my story. We'll talk about trustees, but basically the, the more sane and able-bodied patients and prisoners were used to do work at the building. They, they Mm -hmm. basically helped maintain it. Um, I even came across a story about how prisons had, um, trustees that they right. would give guns to to manage oh the other prisoners. <laughs> and so these are like the people that you see like working on the side of the highway. Yeah. Like, I don't think well, they do it anymore, but like what you envision seeing yeah. on the side of the highway. Well, not even that necessarily, suits. but not not the man that's that's like hard labor, but actually working basically as an employee right. of the prison for free. Um hmm. so it's it's not out of the realm of possibility right. so that they were doing construction and he yeah. might have been had some sort of construction job at the asylum and just walked off with a saw. Seems so crazy. To it me. is crazy. So O'Brien and another escapee, Donald Ringler, stole a pickup truck from a home in Westphalia and traveled to Grand Ledge together. So Ionia to Grand Ledge is what maybe twenty an, minute drive. Yeah. Okay. Not that long. Um both men were spotted in the area before they parted ways the morning Rona was killed. Early that day, another little girl has a close encounter with an attacker but manages to escape the attempt. Oh, my God. So now this town is on high alert. And Grand Ledge. It's a very small town. It's a small town. And it's a small community. And in 1967, it was much smaller than it is today. And this particular area is the heart of downtown. It is exactly, if you're not local, it is Mm -hmm. exactly what you picture a small, small town. town in Michigan looking like. Yeah. It, it's it really is the older buildings with like that almost Midwest feel. The and, bridge with the flags and the old yes. light posts. It's adorable. It's safe. It's where people go to keep their kids safe. That's right. Um, from the bigger cities. And so the idea that there's a man that attacked a little girl, right. that's crazy. It's throwing the town in a, in yeah. a frenzy. So... No, so we've got the notice that Rona has died, and then there was another attack earlier that morning. So parents are scared to let their children out of their sight. Absolutely. They're picking their children up from school early so they don't have to be outside in the potential view of the attacker. I mean, they are just, like, swooping them up. Some of them aren't even sending them to school. And what are the – I mean, having lived in Greenledge for, God, 10-plus years now – the story itself is insane. The thought mm-hmm. of something that happening there is insane. But the chances, like the odds of a little girl walking out of her grandma's house to the store across the I street know. right at the same moment that an escaped insane asylum patient is looking for a little girl to attack, that is so crazy. I know. It's – I don't want to say like the perfect storm – of events, but I mean, it, it was. It really is. Yeah, it for was. him, it was the perfect storm. Um, so finally, about two weeks later, the police pick up fellow escapee Donald Ringler. Donald gives a statement to police that he had an epiphany that O'Brien was the attacker of Rona Cipher. He also states that O'Brien was talking about needing to commit a crime of that nature the morning that they parted ways. So, so he, he'd been you know, like, up. thanks for your epiphany. It's really because he told he you that's told what you he was exactly what he's going to do. So, I mean, what he'd been locked up for, what, 15 years at this point? Mm-hmm. So they get out and, yeah, oh, the first thing I'm going to do is 
find yeah. me a girl. You right. sick. Don't go find girl. your wife who no. pleaded for you to come back to her. Ugh. Hopefully she divorced him at that point. Who knows? Um, so a tip comes in from Odessa, Texas, that a man fitting the description of O'Brien is hanging out on the street in front of a restaurant where the drifters are known to frequent. Oh. Yeah. Police close in on O'Brien and arrest him. They extradite him back to Michigan and now at this point standing trial for the murder of Rona Ray Cipher. Two psychiatrists declare him mentally stable and state that he does know right from wrong. Right. Because, of As course, he, he does. probably already did. Mm-hmm. Always did. O'Brien himself, this is the first act of normalness, like at least a little bit of humanity he, that he does. O'Brien himself even asked to be sent to prison this time because he's afraid that he would get the same urges and commit a similar crime. And clearly be able to get out if he wanted to. Right. So Donald O'Brien was sentenced to solitary confinement with hard labor in the Jackson State Prison. Good. Yep. Bye, guy. See ya. I remember reading, just living there, very typical, Grand Ledge, the police said that nobody from here did this, nobody from here did this, which of course we know that's not necessarily or even often true. Usually it is someone close to a child that's hurting them, Mm -hmm. Um, but they just, they were very adamant that it was not someone local because of where she was found. Um, The officer made some statement along the lines of, um, if she had just been able to scream even once, um, yeah, somebody would they would have. He would have found himself with a wildcat by the tail or something like that. Basically, mm-hmm. her whole family was in the house. Yeah, and her uncle was next door. Mm-hmm. And if they would have just heard her scream, right, they would have caught him. It's gross. And no, and everyone knew the family, so nobody local would have done it there right. knowing that that's where the family Right, lived. yeah, they've known, like right. the police always suspected that it right. was somebody from out of town. Mm-hmm. So, um, as awful as that is, a few years later, it happened again. No. This time in Lansing. Um, I'm going to tell you about the 1970 murder of Stan Casey. Now, I'm not going to bury the lead on this one. This is a very personal story for my family. It's one that I grew up hearing kind of in its most um, basic form uh, because Stan Casey was a friend of my dad's growing up. Uh, In fact, they were actually together the night that Stan was murdered. And this is how I always heard the story as a kid because this is how my dad remembered it. Um, During the summer of 1970, my dad... Stan and a couple of other friends went to a party at a house over off Waverly Road in St. Joe on Lansing's west side. When one of the kids' moms arrived to pick them up, Stan was not ready to leave, so he stayed behind. Later that night, he hitchhiked home, was picked up by a couple of serial killers, and was murdered. His mother was so distraught, she committed suicide shortly after Stan died. No. That makes me sad. Now, all of those things did happen, uh, but the details of the case, which I've only come to know over the past year after quite a bit of research, are so, so much worse Mm. than I ever could have imagined. The Casey family lived on Lansing Road on the city's west side. Stan was the youngest of two boys born to Carol and Mabel Casey in the 1950s. His brother, Stephen, was just four years his senior. Stan was a ninth grader at Waverly East Middle School, which the Waverly School District is just 
within the within the city of Lansing. Right, it's basically right. the west side of Lansing. Um, so he was a ninth grader at Waverly Middle School, and he was known as the tough guy around school. Mm. He liked to hunt, pick fights, and was obsessed with his girlfriend in the way that only a teenage boy can be. <laughs> you remember those boys? I do. Mm-hmm. Um, he <laughs> had a <laughs> he had a stocky build, black hair that hung in his eyes, and lots of freckles. He was 15 years old on the night of June 12, 1970, when he when he attended a party on Hume Street with a few friends, my dad included. One of the boys' moms arrived to take them home after a few hours, but Stan didn't want to go because his girlfriend was there, and he was a jealous guy. He didn't want her at a party with some other guys if he wasn't there. Um, so he and his friends argued a bit. I'm not coming. Yes, you are. It's time to right. go. I don't care. I'm going to stay. That whole thing. Right. Um, and then they just left him there because they had to. He wasn't coming. Um, and it was time to go. So later that night, he and another friend, Dave, left the party together. At the corner of Waverly and St. Joe, they both threw out their thumbs to hitchhike home, as one did in 1970. Right. Um, Stan's house was only about two and a half miles down the road, uh, but I I Google mapped it. It was about a 50-minute walk. Oh. Um, So that's a long walk. And it was late, and he'd been drinking. And it was 1970. Yeah. So (laughs) at the same time, two cars stopped for the hitchhiking boys. Stan got in one car. Dave got in the other. And that was the last time Stan would be seen alive. Mm. When he didn't come home that night, his parents reported him missing. But it was 1970, and he was a 15-year-old boy who was no stranger to getting into trouble. The police and most people who knew Stan assumed he'd just taken off, was out partying, and would come home eventually. And wasn't that the way of it with the police? They they were always mm-hmm. runaways. And mm-hmm. I mean, just sometimes they were. But they probably the- get more runaway stories than actual missing. And ju- but just out of the the caution and the chance that it's not, um, they probably have a. Hopefully, they have a different process nowadays. Yeah, yeah. I, I who knows? I don't know. Um, so they they figured he was just going to come home eventually. Um, he never did. About a week after Stan's disappearance, the Terrell family of Charlotte was driving through town in their pickup truck. Thirteen-year-old William Terrell was riding in the open truck bed, as one did mm-hmm. in the 1970s when you weren't hitchhiking. You were riding in the back of pickup trucks right. <laughs> um, when he spotted something in a ditch along the road. It was the body of Stan Casey, Aww. who'd been sexually assaulted, <gasps> beaten, and shot in the back of the head with a 22 caliber handgun. For years, the case went nowhere. Police had absolutely no leads. And then a jailhouse confession in 1974 led them to a man by the name of Billy Lee Bargy. Billy Bargy first became known to law enforcement when he confessed to molesting three young boys in the Detroit area in 1955. Can I stop you? Yeah. Billy Bargy is the worst name I've ever heard in my life. It is a terrible name, and he was a terrible person. Uh Uh-huh. It's fitting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, go on. (laughs) Um, So... Molested three young boys in Detroit in 1955, which was just coincidentally the same year that Stan Casey was born. Um, He was given a choice, go to trial and face prison time or allow himself to be committed to the Ionia State Hospital. He chose the latter. And so at the age of 25, he was sent to the asylum as a criminal sexual psychopath. (laughs) Sound familiar? Does. Um, With little hope of ever being released. 
Four years later, in 1959, he escaped. He simply walked away from the asylum while working as a trustee. Oh, my God. Mm-hmm. Um, trustees were basically inmates that helped run and care for the facility. So those jobs were given to inmates that were high-functioning and not <clears throat> considered a threat. And I'm sure that this is not where the word came from, but to me, it's like, trustee, we trust you. You're trustee. Right. That's and, lame. But, like, you're still not cured. No. Quote well, unquote. we're going to get into that because, Ugh. yeah, this is a mess, honestly. Sorry. So they trusted the wrong person when they trusted Billy Bargy because he just took the fuck off, um, <laughs> stole a car, and drove out of town. Uh, he was recaptured without incident. He didn't commit any crimes while he was out. They got him. They got him back in. <laughs> and then I wrote, and they didn't trust him anymore after that. <laughs> he was not a trustee. <laughs> he was no longer trusty. Um in 1970, and this is to me really interesting. Following up on the piece, you know, your explanation of the the Goodrich Act, because mm-hmm. this is the undoing of that kind of. Yeah. Um, in 1970, Bargy made headlines again. Times were a changing, and the whole lock them up and throw away the key thing didn't really fly anymore. Lawyers, doctors, and civil rights activists began arguing that you can't just throw people into asylums indefinitely and not treat them. If they're in a mental hospital, it's because they need mental help. You can't just keep them there. Right. Uh, either provide them with proper treatment for their mental health issues or let them go. Which, I mean, absolutely, the mentally ill, of course, need and deserve proper treatment. Um, but institutions like the Ionia State Hospital were known for their abhorrent treatment of, tri- of patients. They essentially did just take them, lock them up. Right. End of story. No actual treatment involved um, or, or no actual treatment that isn't worthy of a horror movie, I guess I should say, <laughs> right. um, involved. So, yes, absolutely. The, the first part of that, the, hey, these people are here for mental issues. They need mm-hmm. mental help. 100% agree with that. Right. But the or let them go part is no. where there was a problem because it was not a black and white issue. There was a lot of gray area that was not considered. And Billy Bargy took advantage of that. His was the very first case to employ this ideology as a defense in filing a lawsuit against the asylum to either treat him or let him go. He'd never been convicted of a crime. He confessed, but he was never convicted. Um, Had he gone to prison, he would have been out within 10 years, which that's problematic all on its own. Mm -hmm. Um, 10 years for raping three little boys? Like, get out of here. Are you serious? Right. Um, Just for raping in general. Sorry. Right. There's, there should be no tolerance for that. Right. But we've seen time and time again there's a high tolerance for it, right. unfortunately. So he'd been in the asylum for 15 years at this point. So he'd been in the asylum longer than he would have been in prison, and he had received no sort of treatment whatsoever. So he actually became the poster boy for this movement. Treat him or let him go. There are so many articles out there, and they're all attached to him. He was mm-hmm. the first case, the landmark case, where this was a tactic. Um, so in May 1970, when he was 39, they let Billy Bargy go. This is crazy. It gets Like, way- not like because it's like the insane asylum, but this is just... It gets worse. Mm-hmm. So much worse. I'm sure. Um, so they sent him to an outpatient family care program at Lansing's St. Lawrence Hospital. Less than mm-hmm. a month later, Stan Casey was dead. Bargy denied killing Stan, but said he was present when it happened. He said another <sighs> man pulled the trigger, 
a man by the name of Keith Hamilton, who Bargy befriended when they were both patients at the Ionia State Hospital. And they were there at the same time as your guy. Yeah. They were all there together. Yep. Um, so They were probably all buds. Let's talk about Keith Hamilton, this fucking guy. All right. Keith Hamilton grew up in Owasso, Michigan. I'm sorry. I love how you preface this. Listen, this is so crazy. It's insane. Um, And we keep using the words crazy and insane, and we're not doing it to be funny. We're doing it because our vocabulary is that limited. And that's what this is. It's like the shock value word. Mm -hmm. Keith Hamilton grew up in Owasso, Michigan, which is a small town about 40 miles northeast of Lansing. He served two and a half years in the Navy before being discharged for a nervous condition. He served time here and there for minor offenses, uh, furnishing minors with alcohol, stealing cars. Um, He was a patient at the Pontiac State Hospital, so their version of an asylum, for 11 months, starting in September 1955, and then again for almost a year, beginning in April 1957. So he was there for almost a year, got out for a little bit, and Mm -hmm. went back for a whole other year. Both times, he was treated for undisclosed mental issues. And then in 1958, he was convicted of molesting a child and was sentenced to a year at the Oakland County Jail. <sighs> I'm, it, it's not crazy yet. Like, it's, this and is it's how bad this is. Still, and it's already crazy. While in jail, he met his future wife, Betty Smith, what? the pianist for a local church group that held weekly gospel meetings for the prisoners. <laughs> What the fuck? Still not that bad yet. When he was paroled, Keith began attending prayer meetings at Betty's parents' home and joined their church. No. He and Betty got married in April of 1960, and he obtained a preacher's license. Stop. Let me. It. Now. A convicted child molester out on parole. Obtained a preacher's license. I, I'm sorry. My jaw is to the floor right it now. It really is. This is... Gonna get worse. Okay, but they didn't have background checks back then. But his wife, like his now wife, met, met him. him in prison. So she knew he was the bad guy. Did she? Did she? She'll, I mean... We'll find out if she Logically, she should have. Oh, just wait. Ugh. So he's a married preacher now. And he and his wife began traveling around the country together, performing at revival meetings. He would preach and they would sing together while Betty played the piano. This is quite the cover for his dirty mind. They lived in Pontiac with Betty's parents and three brothers, all of them in the same house. Pass. I should mention here. Oh, her three brothers, are they young little no, boys? they're older. Well, that's her. good. Betty <laughs> would later tell police that she knew nothing of her husband's history with mental problems or the child molestation conviction, which, what? okay, I'm sorry, but if I decided to marry someone I met while he was serving time in prison. Open your eyes, lady. Yeah. I'm not trying to like I, push I, any blame at all, but I mean, open your eyes and blame. be aware of who you are canoodling with or canoodling. just flat out having conversations with. If you meet if you're the share your love life of your with life someone, in prison, maybe find out why he was in prison. Let's not be naive, ladies. <laughs> <sighs> or anyone. Right. So basically, things are going pretty well for Keith Hamilton at this point. And then he's accused of molesting a little boy he was babysitting. Ugh. While he was awaiting trial on those charges, his ordination was revoked. 
A wall. You think? That's a good plan. And he and Betty started having problems. Oh, because he yeah, was doy. touching other children. He was touching children. Touching children. Right. He Ugh. started having what he called mental problems and sought help from a psychiatrist, but he couldn't afford more than one office visit. He felt like everyone was losing confidence in him, is what he said. And so he was on a downward spiral. Yeah, been on the downward spiral. No, pal. he ha- he really hasn't yet. He really has your life not. is a like Listen, downward shift. On January second, nineteen sixty one, when he was twenty five, Keith finally lost it. While his finally, wife and- yes, <laughs> this is going to be good. It's awful in a bad way. So bad. While his wife and her parents were at church, and for absolutely no apparent reason. He decided to hold Betty's brothers at gunpoint in the basement. He forced 24-year-old Melvin into a small closet and shot him in the back of the head, (gasps) killing him instantly. 25-year-old William took off running up the stairs. Keith caught up to him in the kitchen and shot him in the face. Did he kill him? Yes. (laughs) Yes, he did kill him. This makes me Um, sad. At this same moment... Betty's other brother, Stanley, who's 28, is arriving home. As he approaches the house, Keith comes storming out, covered in blood, rifle in hand, and announces, I just shot your brother, and then takes off. Stanley runs into the house and finds William dead on the kitchen floor and calls police. Now, here's something super fucked up. Because Keith said, I shot your brother, instead of I shot your brothers. Right. It was three hours before they found Melvin's body in the basement closet. So they didn't know that he'd killed them both. They thought that it was just one. Mm. But Keith Hamilton's reign of terror wasn't over yet. He robbed a neighborhood. Nope. Not a whole neighborhood. The entire, like at the neighborhood neighborhood. garage sale? (laughs) He gathered them all up. Um, He robbed a neighbor at gunpoint for all of $15, stole a car from the used car lot that he worked at washing cars, and started driving home to Owasso, where his mother still lived, and which is much closer to Lansing. Um, (laughs) You say through gritted teeth? Yes, Stay, we don't want you. We don't want you up here. Um, a little while later, he walked into the Owasso Police Department and pointed his rifle at the officer on duty, Sergeant Frank Galloway, who was a 30-year veteran of the force. Sergeant Galloway recognized Hamilton from his run-ins with the law when he was younger, and he knew about his history of mental illness. So he stayed calm, and he said, Hi, Keith. What you doing with that gun? Better let me have it. That's so like a 1960s. 60s cop thing to say. Right. Had there been Facebook, he would have been caught by now. What? Maybe. Anyway. <laughs> Social media, you know, word spreads fast. Yeah. So Go Keith on. dropped the rifle and began sobbing. He admitted to the murders but didn't offer a motive. In fact, he would later tell police that he couldn't believe that he did it and that his wife's family had never been anything but good to him. So there, when I said there was no reason, there was no, no reason. reason. He just right. snapped and did it. Um, he was charged with two counts of first-degree murder, but was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Circuit Judge William Beer sent Hamilton to the Ionia State Hospital with the very specific instruction that he should never be released without the case being brought back before the judge first. But nine years later, in 1970, Keith Hamilton was released from the asylum on convalescent status without the judge's consent, which Judge Beer said he never would have given. 
Once he was released, Keith Hamilton moved to Lansing. Ugh. Wait, can I tap you? Yeah. And I don't mean to sound stupid, but what's convalescent status? Basically, like you were good behavior. Good behavior. Okay. Pretty much. Okay. I think um, that's what I took it to mean. But I okay. like to that's kind of what up. I took it mm-hmm. too. So okay. Um, and who else had just been released from the Ionia State Hospital and relocated to Lansing? Billy Bargy. So that brings us back to the night of June twelfth, nineteen seventy. Hamilton and Bargy were driving through West Lansing when they spotted Stan Casey hitchhiking on the side of the road. They picked him up, but instead of driving him the two miles to his house, they headed out of town instead. According to Billy Bargy, Stan consented to sexual activity with the two men, but then changed his mind. According to Stan's friends, there is no fucking way. If a man had touched him in a sexual way, Stan would have tried to kill them. Which very well may be what happened. They picked up a kid and thought he was going to be easy pickings, and Mm -hmm. he wasn't. Um, Because a struggle ensued, and Stan was killed, brutalized, and dumped in a ditch on a rural road. Now here's something super duper fucked up. The day after Stan's murder, an article was published in the Detroit Free Press about a lawsuit Billy Bargy had filed against the Ionia State Hospital. He decided to drop his lawsuit because he was free now and happy and being allowed to rebuild his life. Both his lawyer and his psychiatrist were quoted talking about how well Billy was doing, how successful his (laughs) therapy was, and how the courts had done the right thing by releasing him. Oh, eat your words. guess what? Probably not assholes because he just murdered a child. That's right. So following Mm. Stan's murder, Billy Bargy traveled to Colorado where he was again arrested for child molestation. Gross. Keith Hamilton stayed in Lansing, and he moved into a rooming house on the corner of Washington and Lenaway downtown. In September 1972, Keith befriended a woman that had rented a room at the same boarding house, a member of a traveling carnival from Dallas, Texas, that was in town. (laughs) One night, they met at a Lansing bar, and Keith and a friend offered to drive the woman to Pontiac. Why? Who knows? Like... Hey, I know you're from Texas, and you can't possibly have a need to travel Mm-mm. to Pontiac. And I know we don't know each other, but do you want to go with me on an hour-long car ride to the town where I murdered two people? What? what? Yeah, like, what, why are you going back? Right. Mm-mm. So, anyway, um, on September 30th, 1972, the woman's body was found in a recreation area off M59 near Pontiac. She'd been strangled to death with her own nylons. Keith Hamilton was convicted of second-degree murder in that case, and he was serving out his sentence in Jackson Prison when he was accused of murdering Stan Casey by his old pal, Billy Bargy. So, I just have to apologize right now because I know this already sounds like a really overdramatic made-for-TV movie, but it is all true. It could be made-for-TV. This is a really good Netflix. It's insane. Uh-huh. And I'll Literally. tell you what's insane about it here in a minute. Of course. Okay. The plot thickens. It, it's so upsetting. Every every facet of this story is so upsetting. Um, so following statements Billy Bargy made while awaiting trial for child molestation charges in Colorado in 1974, an Eaton County officer traveled to Colorado to question him. So basically, they've got him there. They're getting ready to put him on trial. And he's like, oh, yeah, well, I killed a kid in Michigan. 
So the Eaton County officer goes out there to question him. He confessed to his role in the murder, and he was extradited back to Michigan, where he was charged with first-degree murder. A jury quickly convicted him, and he was sentenced to life in prison in 1975. Don't clap. His lawyer appealed, and Bargy was granted a new trial. An appeals court judge ruled that Bargy could not be convicted on his confession alone for a few reasons. One, he later recanted that confession, claiming that he only confessed to the Casey murder to get out of a life sentence he was facing in Colorado. Mm -hmm. Since Michigan had taken it so easy on him the first time he raped a little boy, he figured they would do it again. Um, And they did, by the way. Um, Yuck. Two, Police found no evidence at all to corroborate Bargy's confession. Um, literally all they had was the story he told them, and that was it. Um, three, there were questions about the legality of the confession and allegations of impropriety on the part of the Eaton County Sheriff's Department in obtaining that confession in the first place. It was also determined that the judge that oversaw the trial was guilty of misleading the jury. He provided incomplete and inaccurate instructions to the jury, which led to the guilty verdict. The judge was suspended for misconduct, and I think he either got disbarred or forced to retire over it. I'm not entirely sure, but that's my belief. Mm -hmm. Um, His second trial took place in 1977, and Billy Bargy was found guilty of being an accessory to murder after the fact because Mm. part of his story was that – his changed story. So his second version was, I was in the front seat. He was in the back seat with Keith. Keith shot him. I just helped him strip him and dump him in a ditch. Right. Um, So he was sentenced – to five years in prison with 1,079 days already served credited (sighs) since the original conviction because he had served time for that. (sighs) So he served the remaining two years on his sentence and was then extradited back to Colorado where he was sentenced to 28 years for pedophilia. The last information I could find about Billy Bargy, he was under the care of hospice in a Colorado prison dying of kidney failure. This was in like 1998. So I can only hope that he is long dead by now. Right. Uh, The most recent info I was able to find on Keith Hamilton was back when he was still serving time for the murder of the woman in Oakland County. I was not able to find any articles or documents where the woman was ever identified beyond just a carnival worker from Texas. Um, That doesn't mean that she wasn't identified. It just means that nobody thought she was important enough to report on it. That's sad. Um, He was never charged with Stan's murder. And he always maintained his innocence. So one man served less than five years for being an accessory after the fact to the murder, but nobody was ever charged for the murder itself. Stan's poor family. Right. So as I stated at the beginning of the story, Stan's mother was so overcome with grief that she committed suicide just three months after Stan's death. That's sad. So she missed all of this. She missed all of it. Which may be for the better. Right. Um, his father, Carol, passed away some years later, and his brother, Stephen, passed away at the age of 49. Mm. So the entire Casey family is buried together at Deepdale Memorial Park, less than a mile from their Lansing Road home. Wow. Stan's friends were understandably fucked up following his death. Sure. Um, not just because their friend had been murdered, but because this was the toughest guy any of them knew. Mm-hmm. So if something like this could happen to Stan, it could happen to any of sure. them. Sure, Yeah. The day Stan's body was found, the news was announced over the loudspeaker at school. What? One student, who apparently was not a fan of Stan's, said, Good, he was a dick anyway. 
Nearly the entire student body chased him out of the school and all the way home. Good. And just one more thing. That wasn't your dad, was it? (laughs) No. He said he was in a different classroom or not there that day. Um, He wasn't there. He just heard the story about that. Um, So one more piece. Um, The friend that last saw... The friend that last saw Stan alive, Dave, um, who was also hitchhiking and just got into a different car. The two cars pulled up at the same time. Um, He remained good friends with my dad for many, many years. They're still friends. Um, Our families were very close when I was growing up. I was friends with his kids. His niece was my very best friend when we were little. And so it's crazy to me to think like how close he came to being the one that got in that car that night. That's right. So that is the insane story of the murder of Stan Casey that officials tried really, really hard to keep quiet because it reveals just so many failures of the Mm -hmm. criminal justice system on so many different levels. But guess what? I found those pieces. I dug them all up. I put them back together. And now our listeners, at least, will remember Stan Casey's name and they'll remember his story because how could you not? That's right. That's so sad. It's really fucked up. It is. It's such a messed up story. Ugh. Uh, all right. It's time for today's file dump. This is a pretty heavy episode. Um, let's let's keep this one light, shall um, we? Yeah. Let's let's please. Um, what better way to do that? Let's tell about our pets. Our pets. Mm-hmm. They're little extensions of our family. They are our fur babies. For babies. I hate, I hate that. that too. <laughs> so at this point in my life, at the recording of this podcast, I have four dogs. That's a little excessive. But they're not giant dogs. They're little. They're bad dogs. Though. No, they're not bad they're dogs. Not, they just dog like to bark too. at everything. Um, <laughs> a few years ago when I went a little, little overboard on the pet department, we had the four dogs, a turtle, two guinea pigs, and dozens of axolotls, which are like aquatic salamanders that look like little magic nope. dragons. That They're is really cool. way too close to a snake. No, it was nothing like a snake. I but would never l- have a snake. They have scales, right? No, they don't. They're oh. adorable, and I'll show you a picture of one. Okay. Um, but yeah, so we'll put that up on I once owned website. a pet store. <laughs> we had ducks at one point, too. Coyotes got them. Really sad. Oh, that's um, terrible. <laughs> the wait, this is supposed to be good and lighthearted, right. Though, right? Yeah. So today, four dogs. Um, we've got Sammy, who's 14, and Sophie, who's seven, and Opie, who's four, maybe five. Can't quite remember. I think he's five. Um, and then Hunter, who's our biggest dog, but he's the puppy. He's three. Um, Most of Jen's dogs have underbites. They have underbites. They have love. way too much hair. So, like, when someone's coming to my house, I need to know two days in advance so I can dehair it. Otherwise, it's just disgusting. They leave with half a dog on their clothes. Yeah, they could leave with a whole dog because four, <laughs> like I said, is like too many. That's so funny. The whole one with them. Um, yeah, but so we have dogs. They're super cute. I'll find cute pictures of them and we'll post. Did you have dogs growing up? Or pets? Here and there. Yeah, pets here and there. A hamster that was awful and escaped, and my mom hated rodents, which I didn't understand until I was grown up. Mm-hmm. Um, I had hamsters, yeah. too. One was caught in a mouse trap. Oh, no. It was very traumatizing. That's horrible. Um, a bird that uh, my mom also did daycare, so the bird went crazy and started plucking out all its feathers. I think we had parallel lives because my mom <laughs> did daycare and we had a bird too. Oh my God, did yours start plucking out all its feathers because the kids were too crazy? 
I don't know. <laughs> I remember one time, I think it died because it got out of the cage and hit the ceiling fan. Oh my God. That's it's not funny. That's it's terrible. so terrible. It wasn't like gruesome. It just like happened. Knocked Blunt it the fuck trauma? out. Right. Oh my God. Isn't that horrible? That's horrible. I think I was like six at the time and I didn't quite understand. But now telling it as an adult, I'm like, that was fucked up. That is fucked up. Yeah. yeah and then we had um, one dog that I was really well bonded with. Um, we wound up having to rehome her because she, my brother was a lot younger than me. Mm-hmm. She was a cocker spaniel and she was real nippy and she kept biting Aww. at him. Um, mm-hmm. So we had to rehome her. And then we got another dog several years later and I never really bonded with him. His name was Hunter, coincidentally, because that's our dog's name. So I've always been a dog person, not really a cat person. Sorry, we just lost half our listeners. But... Um, <laughs> I love cats, but my husband's allergic. Yeah, so I'm just not super. With dogs, they're a lot, but they can't get up onto everything. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? On and the then, counters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Like they're you can sneaky. put something up and then your stuff's safe. They're like little sleuths. And also, but th- I appreciate that about them also, too. Also, we live in an old house in the country. And if I had a cat and it brought me a mouse, which is its <laughs> job. <laughs> I would burn my whole house down with the cat and right. the mouse inside it. So Yeah, that wouldn't be good. No. So yeah, four dogs at the moment. That's a lot. It is a lot. I have one dog. One dog. Her name's Lola. Lola. She is a poodle and a beagle mix. Okay. So they call that a poogle. A I poogle. Call, I call I it, it a mutt. Um, she looks like a little schnauzer. She does. She does, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody always asks, is she a schnauzer? No. Um, growing up, we had cats and dogs. We had a cat, Charlie, a cat, Andy. Andy actually has quite the story. He got away one night. We have lots of weird stories about our pets. We <laughs> took really good care of them, surprisingly, with all these stories. I swear we took care I of our swear, pets. I swear. We now are let pet me tell lovers. You this time. <laughs> so our cat was an inside cat. Mm-hmm. He got away. And we, it was wintertime. He was gone for two weeks. Oh, I, no. Uh huh. We kind of like wrote it off as he's not coming home. Well, I opened the door one day to go outside, and there he is, like pet cemeteried out with this growl, like no. Yeah, it was it was super creepy. Don't ever make that noise again. I know it's really (laughs) creepy. Isn't it's exactly what he sounded like. So he looked like he had been caught in like the fan of a car. You know how cats will crawl up and yes. to stay warm. That's what he looked like. Like his ear was dangling. Oh no! His eyes were really bulgy. This is supposed to be a happy story. It's not a happy story. So I'm sorry. So come to find out, we like scoop him up with a towel. We take him to the vet right away. Um, he had been shot <gasps> with a BB gun in the eyes. Oh no! His tail had been set on fire. Uh huh. His whiskers had been set on fire. Somebody poured battery acid on him. What? And they took an ice pick to his ear. <gasps> Isn't this the worst? It's the worst thing. Animal I've ever torture heard. is disgusting. And I and just so told this, you the worst story I've ever heard, and now this is. I the know. Worst I'm story. sorry. I'm taking a light mood, and I'm damping oh. it. But I will lighten it up, and I will say we got him treatment. We had hit. It was just like an earlobe that had to be it was amputated. Just the cartilage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he ended up being blind. But let me tell you, that cat could catch a fly in the window. Like so he, he made it. He made it. He went um, on and lived a wonderful life for years. Like I got him, I think, when I was twelve, and he died when I was like thirty-ish. Oh my gosh! And this happened um, when I was fifteen. So he lived many, many years. Many years. Many oh years. My People God. used to call him Van Gogh because. <laughs> 
He was missing the <laughs> ear. Yeah. Oh my god! Um, but we had a dog, Peanuts, plural Peanuts. Peanuts. Mm-hmm. She was a beagle. She was cool. We would play hide and seek with her. Oh. But our Lola now is a she's a crabby old lady. She's thirteen. They get crabby now. when they get old. She's pretty crabby. If you touch her, she like Wah! she like barks at you. Mm-hmm. She's just kind of like a leave me alone kind of gal. That's how our our Sammy is. He's fourteen, mm-hmm. and he just you know he wants you to feed him and he wants you to let him right. out every five minutes. And I know with him we're getting to the end. We're actually probably past That's it. That's how I feel with Lola. Um, but we're it's hard. We've mm-hmm. not ever had to do it before, so it is hard because mm-hmm. they're your family. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he's the same way. He doesn't really. He doesn't want to be picked up. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to be touched. Right. Just let me live my life. They turn into assholes. Yeah, just like us. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's it, huh? That's it. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for making us a part of your day. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at SoDeadPodcast. You can also find us online at SoDeadPodcast.com. Email us your feedback and story ideas to SoDeadPodcast at gmail.com. Now get out there and shine. You magnificent what the fucks.